Over the past few weeks, I have made regular reference to the aspect of identity. We have talked about identity. We've talked about how we care about our identity. And uh, as Americans, we see often in our lives, in our particular culture, and, and cultures differ on how one's identity is expressed, uh, but here in America, one of the primary ways we express identity is through our outward appearances, uh, through the way we dress, uh, through the way we cut our hair, uh, to the uh, things that we apply to our bodies, seek to express our identities. We know the word identity has been thrown around much in our culture of recent when we've talked about gender identity and how one can change that identity, well, really moment by moment, day by day. Identity in our culture, which is prized as important, can be easily exchanged uh, through the things you wear. You can change your identity by changing your clothes. Through the style of clothes you wear to the kind of haircut you have, you can change your identity. You can be one thing one day and another another day. As, as Americans, we spend a lot of money and resources on the way we look in order to express how we feel about our identity. Americans, they say, are some of the most depressed people because they struggle understanding their personal identity. I'm sure many of you remember when you were in school, but I know particularly in the 80s and 90s, it was popular to talk about self-esteem, about making sure that children felt good about themselves because the, the reaction was to what happened in the 1960s and 70s when America began to change and transform its normal identity. What they found was that children were being sort of uh, dis discombobulated over this revolving idea of identity. And what they found is that the majority of people living in America were depressed. They didn't feel good about themselves. They didn't feel positive vibes about themselves. And so that was often expressed in the things they wore. Now, I want to give you just some statistics here recently to back up um, why we care about identity. Sort of prove to you that we as Americans care about our identity. Uh, in 2016, this is first sort of category is women. Women, on average, in America, uh, totally, in, in 2016, spent $16 million collectively on cosmetic surgeries. The average American woman will spend $300,000 on skincare in her lifetime. $12 billion will be spent on clothing annually. Approximately $1,700 her American family is spent on just the clothes that we wear. In 1930, the average woman in America had just nine outfits. Today, the average American woman has over 30 outfits, one for every day of the month. And surprisingly, they still can't find anything to wear. Not to pick on women only, but consider some of these statistics on men. In recent 
in some recent research, it was found in America today in 2016, right? Because 2017 is not over, so, so we'll just say that this is probably true today, that it is found that men actually spend more money on clothes than women do. In fact, over the next decade, men will outpace women in their expenses on clothes so much that it will double by the year 2026. Men spend over $1 billion a year fighting baldness. Men spend on average $25 billion a year on haircuts. I guess those are the guys that aren't dealing with the baldness. Uh, this doesn't include the billions that we spend uh, as American men uh, going to gyms, dieting, and on various exercise equipment. So what's the point? Uh, through these just sort of silly illustrations, you see that we care about what we look like externally. We focus more on the external than we do on the internal. We, the reason why so much is spent on these things is because we don't feel right inwardly. That we're wrestling inwardly about our identity. It's important because what we look like often reflects how we feel, Right? We've known this, right, when we see kids beginning to change their, their clothing uh, attire and go to, like, you see a kid, like, wearing, like, kind of preppy type clothes, and then they start wearing, like, grunge, and, like, they're all wearing black all the time, and you're like, what's going on? Something's going on in their little hearts, right? They're being transformed. Well, these outward expressions are, are what's going on inwardly in us. And this morning, I want us to think about how God has spoken into our lives about who we are. And how that transforms how we live. That is, the things we do externally are a reflection of inward things that have happened. So when, we, when the Bible exhorts you to be holy, it's not sort of a debtor kind of ethic. Like, you know, you try really hard to be holy. Um, we've often joked about how, you know, maybe in your Christian walk, if you've been a Christian maybe for some time, uh, you've maybe tried to do this yourself. You've woken up in the morning and you've said, you know, today I'm going to try to be perfect. I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to make a mistake today. And, and what we find right there out of the gate, we stumble and we fall. Right? We, we never really make it past that initial statement. Uh, that's not to say anything about our inherited unrighteousness, but, but we understand that we struggle and fight in our Christian lives to be holy. And I'm sure this morning that majority of you this morning have heard sermons and been taught that how to follow Jesus is you need to be better. You need to work harder. You need to strive. You need to work. You need to, you need to be holy. You need to be good. You need to follow some rules. And the reason I know that is because I've been in church long enough as a, as a young guy, grew up in church. And one of the things I used to see hanging around church walls all the time were the Ten Commandments. It used to surprise me as a young guy. I was like, man, I, I don't know, what's all these, I guess we're supposed to like know these and live by these. And, and as you look at those and you try to live by those, you'll never be able to do that. You'll never be able to obey a set of laws and a set of rules. And all we're doing is, is actually condemning people eternally to hell. There is no grace in the law. You see, grace comes through Christ, then the law comes. We live in light of the grace of God in our lives. So I'm not diminishing the need to follow uh, the Ten Commandments. I'm not diminishing the need to live in light of that. But what you need to understand is your position in Christ... Who you are defines how you live. 
Who you are this morning in Christ defines how you will live. And so when you're trying to measure up to someone else's standard of who you should be, when you're constantly trying to fulfill some list that some preacher or teacher or some other well-meaning person gave you to measure up your position with Christ, I will guarantee you're going to fail this morning. I can guarantee you're going to fall flat this morning. And what I want to offer you is grace. I want to offer you the Bible the mercy of God, that salvation isn't by obedience to a set of rules, but that it is through the transforming work of the Spirit of God that God has saved you and He has made you into something and He is going to transform you from one degree of glory to the next. So that's what we want to think about this morning. We want to think about who we are. Over the past three, five weeks, excuse me, we have considered in the first chapter of First Peter uh, really five different uh, things that he has said, five different identities that he has identified about these. And we want to remind ourselves that he is writing to Christians who are facing various trials, that are facing temptations and difficulties. They are trying to live a Christian life in an increasingly secular culture. In fact, they're living in a secular culture. They're living in a culture that never was Christian. Uh, They're living, if you will, in a similar culture that we live in today, a culture that will never claim the name of Christ. We need to kind of put that out of our mind, right? Uh, You know, we can plaster in God we trust on everything, Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, this nation will continue to be a pagan nation that will be destroyed by King Jesus. Okay? Uh, So to be clear about some things this morning, what God has done is he is creating a new nation, a people for his own possession. And so we have considered, as we've walked through this, various things. First, we considered that we are chosen. That we are elect. This is who we are. Your identity. If you have repented of your sins and trust in Christ, you are God's chosen person. We have considered uh, in that second sermon that you are saved. That Christians are saved by God's mercy and not by works. That our salvation is not by something that we earned. We learned also that we are the point. The point of God's redemptive work from eternity past, I mean billions and trillions of years ago, was you. The point of all the work that God has done was you this morning. God had purposed to save you from eternity past before He ever created the first molecule. He had planned your salvation We went on to learn that we are holy, that we are a holy people. Uh, Very clearly, God has called us to be holy. That is our identity. When God looks upon us, He does not see the wretched, sinful people that we know ourselves to be, but we are perfectly righteous and holy, and we learn that from that we are to live holy lives, or out of that reality we live holy lives. And then last week, We learned the truth here that we are God's people that are created to love others. 
that we are created to that we are, if you will, lovers of others. And that we love others because Christ has loved us. And your identity this morning, these truths that we've considered, are as sure as Christ Jesus says them himself. They are as sure. This is why we sang the songs we sang. This is why we claim that, that Christ is our rock. He's not sand. He's rock. Because the truths that he says are true. God has saved you. He has called you to be holy. And so what we want to understand this morning as we think that we are God's possession. So I want you to think about this morning how God has called you and saved you and that you are his possession. You are his. And so let's read 1 Peter this morning. Let's think about this this morning. 1 Peter in chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we see in this passage, the point that Peter has is this. God has chosen believers to be his treasured possession so that they may display his character and declare his gospel among the nations. Understanding who you are transforms how you live. Uh, we have seen this over and over and over again. And I, and, and I hope that this repetition just grinds into your soul the truth that who you are in Jesus Christ transforms how you live. That you do not work to be holy, you are holy. It is declared to you that it's who you are. And therefore you live in light of this new reality. And so the purpose this morning is to remind believers that their new identity in Jesus Christ and to, to, to show you then your responsibility to live in light of what Christ Jesus has done. We see a purpose statement in the middle of this passage that will help propel us into some action. But before we get to action, we have to lay the foundation. Again, I'll say it another way. All of the ethical commands, all of the imperatives in Scripture are grounded in indicative statements. That is, in grounded in truth claims about Jesus and about what Jesus has done. So the commands of Scripture 
are always grounded in who you are. So for example, back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to the nation of Israel when God had saved them, not before God had saved them. The law came after grace. They were to live in light of who they were as a nation. But we recognize they failed in that. They failed to live in light. But there is hope for us this morning as God's people. For he has caused his spirit to live in us that we might obey him. So let's look at three things this morning. First, as God's treasure, believers are recipients of rejection. As God's treasure, believers are recipients of rejection from this world. Secondly, we'll consider very briefly in these points that as God's treasures, believers are recipients of honor from God. And third and finally, I want to kind of camp out in our remaining time with that as God's treasure, believers are recipients of a new identity. And we'll think about what that new identity is in verses 9 through 10. So first, as God's treasure, you are recipients of rejection from the world. And what do we mean by that? Well, look with me in verses 4 through 5. Peter tells us that when you come to Christ, that when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust in Christ, you are trusting in a living stone. Uh, that is, you are resting in a rock, right? You're resting in a foundation. But notice how he says that this living stone you come to is one whom has been rejected by men. Christ Jesus was rejected by the religious, uh, religious people uh, if, of his day, by the Jewish people, that, the, the people of his own uh, ethnicity. He was rejected by them. And we understand that the whole world rejects Jesus. This world will never accept Jesus. The only way this world accepts Jesus is when you water Jesus down. When you turn Jesus into a civil religion, then people will get near Jesus. That is, when you blunt all the sharp edges that come with following Jesus, then you will find people acclimated and growing near Jesus. And so in our culture, it's easy to say, I follow Jesus. It's another thing to count the cost of following Jesus. Like, do you ever really pay attention to what Jesus says in his word? You know, one of the reasons when I came to be the pastor of the church, we spent almost 18 months in the gospel of Mark, wasn't because I wanted to exasperate you, but I wanted to make clear to you who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him. That is, that it was going to be hard to follow Jesus. So if someone has convinced you somewhere along the way that following Jesus is easy, let me clarify something for you. When he says take up your cross, he means take up the very thing that will kill you so that he can make a new you. When Jesus says you must deny yourself, take up your cross, Jesus says you need to get to work killing some things. And the first thing that's going to die is your identity. Who you think you're going to be. Who you want to be in life. What you want to do. 
You see, to follow Jesus, you've got to die and you have to live to Christ. And that's not easy. I mean, he's using language of killing things. Why do we think that's going to be simple? Why do we think that's going to be easy? Jesus says some things are going to die. In particular, what I mean is going to die is you. You're going to die. And so following Jesus is costly. This world will never accept it. And as we come to Christ, we understand that Christ was rejected by this world. But notice the contrast that he has in verse 4. Rejected by the world, but chosen by God. What Peter is saying that who cares what the world has to think about Jesus? Who really cares what, what people's opinion of Jesus is? But why do we care? Why do we spend so much time defending Jesus? Like, that's not our call. Our call isn't to like be Jesus' spokesman and defending him. Our responsibility is to declare this is who Jesus is. Get over it. Like Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the king of the world. Like I will defeat every nation of this world. I will be the king. You have no choice in the matter. I don't care what you have to say about it. And that's how he dealt with the religious leaders. Uh, you can read through the Gospels for yourself and to see how Jesus, he never played around with him. He didn't like, oh, come on, guys, try to figure it out. No, no, he just said, like, this is who I am and suck it up and deal with it. And so Jesus was rejected by the world, but chosen by God. And so we are, notice what he says. He says, like Christ, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. I want you to just see here that Peter's point is that Christians are also living stones chosen by God. That we, our identity is in Christ. We are just like Christ. Uh, we, we are recipients of everything that Christ received. And as Christ is chosen and precious, so we are chosen and precious. So as Christ was rejected by the world, so we will be rejected by the world. That as followers of Christ, we should not find it strange that our friends and family look at us weird when we actually don't want to go enjoy the 70 degree weather, but we want to gather in here uh, and worship Christ. That should be weird. And it is weird. It's not normal. It's not. I mean, there's so many better things that people think they're doing right now, but you've chosen to do something different this morning. And it's weird and it's different. But, but, but Jesus told us this, didn't he? He said that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they'll keep yours. And the reality that Jesus is saying is like, listen, they didn't honor me. They're not going to honor you. And it's okay. And so Jesus wants to make clear through the apostle Peter that you will receive rejection from the world, but that you have been given a new life. And we're going we're gonna to delve in a little bit more in a moment thinking about this spiritual house that he's building us. So we're going to move on to point number two, that as God's chosen people... We are recipients of honor. Peter backs up this claim about Jesus being the, the chosen cornerstone with some scripture, particularly Isaiah. And here he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah in verse 6, where it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and the stone of stumbling and a rock of, a, of offense. So what, what Peter is saying is that, listen, as God's chosen possession, as God's treasure, you are recipients of honor from God. Rejection from the world, but honor from God. He says that Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation for our lives together. Christ is the one whom the whole building is being built up. The whole thing is structured. And so belief in Christ will bring honor and never shame. That's what he says there as he's quoting Isaiah. He says, listen, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, this is what happens. Right, So he is saying clearly that we can trust in the finished work of Christ and know that we will never be put to shame. That you will never be put to shame for your faith. For the radical steps that you take in in your life to faithfully follow Christ, uh, you will never fail in that. You will never be put to shame before God. Oh yes, there are going to be those that are going to laugh at you. There's going to be those that are going to try to shame you and be like, you're a fool. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever commit? Why would you ever give money to a church? Why would you ever do that? I mean, you know, churches just take your money and, you know, do bad things with it. Why would you ever trust other Christians? You know, Christians, they're hypocrites and they just want to hurt you. They're just going to do bad things to you. Why would you ever put yourself in that position? And when you say, no, God has called me this. God has invited me into a family and I'm going to love that family, even though we understand we're all sinful people. Praise God for that. You will never be put to shame in that. And we see also that we have honor from God. But notice here also that what happens when you deny Jesus. When you say Jesus is not enough. When you see that Jesus is not sufficient. We see clearly taught here the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. That Christ Jesus is the only one through whom we can be saved. Jesus Christ is the only one. He says, so the honors for you who believe, but notice what happens for those who do not believe. Notice he outlines two things here. So again, quoting Isaiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is that those who do not believe in Christ will not be saved. Peter is making very clear here a contrast between those who genuinely believe and those who do not believe. Peter writes, Jesus confronted the religious leaders with this same text when he writes, Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to make very clear to you, though you might be convinced in your own mind that that God will accept you because of some obedient acts you've done or because you're generally religious in your uh, affections, that you generally have some religious feelings in your hearts, those things are insufficient to save. That only by repenting of your sins and trusting in what Christ accomplished on the cross for you. That is, Jesus died for your sins. He bore the wrath of God that your sins deserve. And his resurrection demonstrates, vindicates that what he did accomplishes your salvation. And only by turning away from living your life and living God's new life in Christ can you be saved. 
That's the only way. Jesus is the only way. And, and we as a congregation are committed that there are not many ways to Jesus or many ways to God, but only one through Christ Jesus. And that's what Peter's point is. And notice here something that we don't have much time to allude on, but I want to again point out. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter is making clear that there is human responsibility and divine sovereignty at play. There is the human responsibility to believe, to repent, and trust, but yet there is divine sovereignty that they were destined by God to perish eternally. And there is a sense of tension in this for which is a mystery uh, that I do not have all the answers to, uh, neither does, does any man on this earth, but one which rests in the mind of God. But that God has called some to be saved and others to perish. And for that we rest, and we rest assuredly. So finding our identity close to Christ, we are despised and rejected by men, but yet we are chosen by God. We will receive honor from God. And I just want to camp out finally at this final point. As God's treasure, you are recipients of a new Identity. Look with me again at verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I just want to outline for you just a few things that Peter says here. First, he says that Christians are God's chosen people. Uh, again, this is not new to the letter. We saw all the way back in verse 1, to, the, to those who are elect exiles. Those, are, those are who are chosen in Christ. Those who have been called out of darkness and light from eternity past. God has chosen a people for his own possession. He has chosen a people. Now, I want to be clear here. Peter does not mean that you are choice, that you're like the prime choice beef, like you're the one that was like of all of the good, all the meat out there in the world, you were the, the prime one, you were a prime beef, like that's not what he's saying here, he's saying you are chosen, not choice, and in fact, Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is despised, what is foolish, and what is ignorant, to shame the wise. So, so if you just want to like a reality check on who you are, if you're a Christian this morning, in the eyes of the world, you are a fool and not wise. It's God's good kindness, isn't he? That God chooses, uh, if you will, the idiots, not the wise. God, right, I mean, that's just God, the way God works. He, he, never will, he never chooses. I'll give you one illustration of that. Uh, in, in 1 Samuel, right, the nation of Israel, God allows them to choose a king. And who do they go for? Well, they go for the natural guy, right? The guy who looks good, who's fit, who's smart, the guy who, you know, is attractive, who, who can, has a good voice, who can communicate well, who's a strong leader, Right? Who was that? That wasn't David. No, that was Saul. Right? Saul was the man. And if this morning, if we had paraded a Saul in front of you this morning, you would have said, that's the guy we want. We want him. You would be drooling and everything like that. That's who you would want. But who did God choose? God chose a weak dude. 
Oh, he was strong. He had some strength. He, you know, he could do some pretty wicked stuff to some animals. But, but, but he wasn't the guy that you were naturally inclined to. Think about Jesus. What does Isaiah say about Jesus? Jesus had no appearance that we were attracted to him. You know, it's funny, we have these pictures where we're attracted to Jesus. We paint these beautiful pictures about Jesus like Jesus is a good-looking dude. Apparently, according to Isaiah, uh, Jesus was, was just a common-looking guy. You would, not, you would have passed him on the street and would not have turned. There was nothing about him that would have made you say, I want to follow him. He looks like a guy. He looks like a leader. And so it is with us. There's nothing in us that is choice about us. There's nothing in us. So to deflate a sort of Pelagian idea that God chose us because of some deed we would do in the future, that is not true. The doctrine of election undermines that clearly and teaches something else. That God's choice in us has nothing to do with us. So do not boast in your election this morning but rather humble yourself that you were unworthy. Secondly, we see that we are royal priesthood. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Earlier, Peter talked about how God had, has created a people to be a priesthood. What did priests do? Priests mediated the sacrifice. Now, what he is saying here is not the distortion of Roman Catholic theology where the priest is a mediator between the people and God through the Mass. That is, that they are the ones that stand between man and God and open a new way. No, Jesus is clearly our high priest. But what he is saying here is that we are God's people who offer salvation to those who need it. We are the ones who are the mediators of a new covenant. We are the ones who offer the covenant of Christ Jesus. We are the ones who proclaim the gospel. And he says here that we are royal, majestic, and prestige. We are this. This is who you are. You are one who takes the message of reconciliation to a lost and dying world. He also says thirdly in verse 9 that you are a holy nation. A holy nation. Right? So you begin to see here some common language here, right? First, community is created through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it not? Do you see any word in there about individualism? You are a person. No, no, you see you are a people, nation, priesthood. Right? You're a collective group. There is no individuality in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is so counter-American culture, it's not even funny. We don't even understand it. Right? Some of you senior saints who have seen over the decades of the 20th century, now in the 21st, have seen the tides of individualism, right? Uh, the community, the communal activity, the community has gone away, right? Uh, there was a book a number of years ago called Bowling Alone. And it was just a, a great word picture uh, of how, you know, as a society that we no longer, you know, do things together, but we do things individually. And so we can see that as, a, as Christians, bought by the blood of Christ and united into a family, why church membership has kind of waned over the 20th century. Why it's not as important. And people come and go. They just kind of do. There's no commitment, no covenanting together. People just kind of come. There's no, there's no life on life together. That's because it's all about me. 
Like life, I've been told since I was a baby that life is about me, about doing and being who I want to be. And that's what you've been told. You be whoever you want to be. If you want to be a girl, you be a girl. If you want to be a boy, you be a boy. You be whatever you want to be. We see now the natural outworking of what we thought was well-meaning. We used to tell our kids, you know, if you want to be an astronaut, you can be an astronaut. Well, now you can see how that, that sort of worldview plays out in a fallen world. But we are a people group. That word nation there is a people group. We are a new people group. There are not, there are not like a bunch of people groups in the family of God. There are one new people group. Right? Represented by various people groups, right? So there's not one ethnic people group, but many represented, but now we've been created one in Christ. That's what's so glorious about a body of believers gathering together. When you see people, whenever I look out and I see people, I mean, I know y'all, y'all did not come from the same background. Y'all are not related. Y'all come from different backgrounds, different ways of life, different statuses in life, different ethnicities. And it is something glorious to see when you come together and sing and pray and read scripture together because you are reflecting this reality. You are a people, a united people for his own glory. And we see again this aspect of holy and we don't have time to dwell much there, but we are a holy people. That's who we are. Fourthly, he says that you are a holy people, and look how he goes on to say, a people for his own possession. You are God's possession. This body is God's, not mine. No preacher ever owns the body of Christ. You are God's possession. As a part of God's family, you are owned by God and protected by God. This is why we are so strongly uh, firm in our understanding of the perseverance of the saints. That those who are truly saved persevere to the end. Those who are truly converted, those who are truly born again, can't be unborn. Once you're born, you're born. Once you're new, you're new. Like you don't like that doesn't like undo itself. There's not some undoing process because you are God's possession. Like think about that for a minute. If God is the one who holds you. What could ever happen to you? If God's the one that has you in his hands, oh, there are going to be some, some waves. There are going to be some storms. There's going to be some difficulty. It is going to be painful. But God's got you. Doesn't that transform the way you look? Uh, this week, it's just an illustration of that. And, and, and I know, that, look, I'm not diminishing the need to be serious when there's a natural disaster, I mean, I think you need to be very serious. You know, in our own state, we have faced hurricanes. You know, the one came up the uh, into the bay. The one, you know, we we've seen that when we when I was pastoring in Southern Maryland, one just blew through and like destroyed half of Southern Maryland. Well, look, I've seen that, and we want to prepare for that. But as Christians, there is a settled resting in God that God has a, even in the midst of a storm. Again, that doesn't mean we don't diminish, we don't work, we don't pray, we don't all those things. But we have a sense of subtleness, like I'm in, I'm, God's in control. 
God is in control because we are his possession. Verse 9, he goes on in verse 9, he says that you are God's possession delivered from darkness into light. You see how this passage is so packed in with great. That you may proclaim. Now Peter shifts here with a purpose claim. He says, listen, this is all true so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Listen, you as God's people have been called out of darkness into light. You're no longer in darkness. You're no longer in the chains of sin. You have been brought to the light. Now that does not mean we don't take the path back to darkness. That does not mean that we don't try to get back to our old way. And we've seen Peter talk about that, how we, we want to you know, kind of slip into some old habits. We want to go back into the old man. But what Peter is saying here to us through the inspiration of the Spirit of God is that, listen, you are in the light. So live in the light. Don't live in darkness. And so this morning, if you have been living in darkness, if you have been hiding in your sin and not confessing it to others and very importantly, confessing it to God, then do it today. Don't wait. Come into the light. Cry out to God for mercy. Confession is agreeing with God that what you are doing is sinful in His eyes. But that confession is not only vertical, but it is also horizontal. In living in the light, you also live in the light with others. And you invite others and say, listen, I've been struggling with this. I have, I've been addicted to this. Or I am uh, uh, being tempted. With, I am angry all the time. And I just want to confess that to you right now. Will you pray for me and keep me accountable to that for God's glory? We've been delivered. This is who we are. We have been delivered. Delivered, And then he goes on that we have been delivered to proclaim something. And this is the glory of redemption. We've been chosen by God so that we might display his glory. And this is what the church is about. We gather together every week on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to display the glories of God. That's what we're doing. It's what we're singing. That's what we're praying about. We are displaying God's glory. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, angels gather together every Lord's Day and look in and see the glory of God on display. In fact, they spend their weeks longing for what happens here. I wonder, do you? Angels in heaven spend their week preparing for this. That they can see it. Do you? Do you prepare yourself or do you just stumble in here? Like, you know, if, if things are right in your schedule and it fits in and, you know, the weather's right and all those good things line up, then I'll be here. And even if I'm here, I'm passive. Or do you come prepared to display God's glory as angels look in on it? I mean, doesn't that put in perspective what we're doing here? Like what we're doing here is like transcendent. It's out, out bigger than us. It's bigger than, than, than a small gathering this morning. It is cosmic. In verse 10, he goes on to say, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. He sets the record straight, straight here. This was not always true of you, but now it is. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received. As God's new people in Christ, we are recipients of mercy. Mercy is undeserved. 
It is nothing that we deserve, nothing that we earn. We had once been outside of that, but yet God has extended this mercy to us. As we read earlier in Ephesians 2, once that we were far off, but now we have brought near. Brother or sister, this is who you are in Christ this morning. Spend this Lord's Day meditating on just these verses. Spend this week thinking through verses 9 and 10. Now, really all of it, but just really camp there and think about this new reality and how that works itself out in a community of believers who are blood-bought brothers and sisters united together in love for others, that we genuinely are a new people in Christ and called to live for his glory. Will you display his character this week in your life? Will you put on display his holy character? Friends, the way we reflect God in our lives tells others about that. One of the, one of the clearest pictures of that in, is in the family of father's care for his spouse and children. In fact, everyone in here had a father, whether or not you had one in the home or a father figure in your life. And did you know that you got more of your understanding of who God is like from that person than you did from anyone else? As fathers leading in a family, your children get to know a little bit about what God is like through who you are and how you behave. This is one of the most unique things that we see in our lives that, that fathers have and, and parents as well, but, but we see that. And so in our lives as God's people, how are we reflecting God's character? Is God angry all the time? Or is he gracious and merciful? Is God quick to lash out at others when they fall and make mistakes? Or is God tender to pick up when someone stumbles? How does God, how is God reflected in your character, in your life? Well, as God's people, we pray that we would display his glory and his character. As we have seen again, the exhortation to praise God is tightly tied to our identity in Christ. Who we are is what we praise. We've been chosen by God to become his treasured possession that we might declare to the world his marvelous grace. This is what our responsibility is. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you would be encouraged by that truth today. That you are his possession. You are not owned by anyone else. No one else is your master but God alone in Christ alone. You have a new identity in Christ and a responsibility to live in light of that identity, to live a holy life that reflects your new identity in Christ. Though the world may reject you, take heart. So the world rejected Christ. Though you face trials in this life, take heart. You will receive honor from God. You are a new people. You are God's people created in Christ Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would seal these truths from your word in our hearts that we might live in light of them. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that would reflect your character in our life for your glory alone. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To help solidify this